Please don't rush the cameras. You'll hurt yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, man? Good. I'm I'm doing okay. You know, I'm here in LA. Where, mm-hmm. where are you guys, by the way? I'm not even sure. Jersey and New York. Oh, Jersey. Yeah, New York. New York and New Jersey. Yeah. Do you know uh, about the Uncle Floyd show in New Jersey? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, yes, my first time I ever wrote something for TV. The Uncle Floyd show. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I love Uncle Floyd. I worked with him a bunch, and uh, he's just a super cool dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just got in touch with him again after – I don't even want to say how long ago it was, but I was I was not even 20 years old. Oh, and, my God. Uh, I was writing skits and skittles. Wow. Oh, my God. I think that, I think I met him when I was 20 – when I was around 20. I started doing stand-up when I was 20, and uh, I knew him just from um, – Good Morning Vietnam. You know, he play. I mean, he plays that one character in that in that movie like hilariously. So I had no idea he. I, I didn't know anything about like the Uncle Floyd stuff. Like I guess I didn't just didn't see that when I was a kid or whatever. So when I saw him do his act for the first time was when I worked with him for the first time, and I was like blown away. Yeah, yeah. The show was nuts and crazy. It was. Uh, it was sort of like what the kiddie shows were in the 60s, these black and white, you know, shows for kids, but mm. it was for stoners, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, kind of what kind of skits did you write for him? Jeez, uh, really stupid, fun, <laughs> you know. What would, I'm trying to think what would be, because it was such a hodgepodge of everything. There would, there would be silent bits. There's like reoccurring characters, like yeah. this character called Ricardo Romantico. Yes, uh, he would have the long cigarette holder and then little thin mustache, and he'd play romantic music, and he would talk about all the romantic spots he'd take his date in New Jersey. Mm. You know, oh my god, off to the TikTok diner where we'll, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, which is still a. I don't know. I think it closed. I think it closed like a couple of years ago. Uh, how did you wind up hooking up with Floyd when you were 20? Um, well, I was doing stand-up in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I was slowly kind of segueing into writing. I was writing jokes for comedians and a couple famous comedians. And it's funny, I hit a point, and I was only 24 or 5, not even. No, I was, I was 20-whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of knew then, like... I wasn't going to be Robert Klein. I wasn't going to be George Carlin, you know? So I, I was thinking what happens when I'm 50? Like at that right. point, I didn't even like going on the road when I was 20. Oh, wow. Uh, I like, and I had been writing a little bit here and there along the way and I was liking it. And, um, and then, you know, as a stand up, you have, you know, 15 hours a day to time to fill. Mm-hmm. So I was flipping around Manhattan Cable and I stumbled onto that show and it, I just thought it was hilarious. And I thought, you know, I haven't scripted anything before, but I felt I connected with the show. Right, right. And I just called the studio and they connected me to Floyd directly. 
he just picked up the phone, you know, and I said, I want to write for the show. I got, I could, I said, I look, I got a couple scripts and I didn't have any scripts, but I kind of cornered myself. <laughs> Did that kind of warp uh, your perception of how it was done a little bit since they connected you directly to Floyd right away? Were you like, oh, this is so easy. I just got to call a place and <laughs> I speak to the guy in charge and that's it. Well, it, I thought so too, because, uh, when I was, you know, 17 mm -hmm. and living at home in my little, you know, basement, panel basement, you know, I, I would, I was such a comedy nerd that I would record comedians on TV. And I mean, it's how long ago it was. I had the little cassette microphone up at the speaker. and Oh, you literally recorded record them. These, yeah. Wow. And then I kind of would listen to the jokes over and over and break them apart and try to understand them. I was telling them to friends, you know, telling them, you know, jokes about my wife and, and my <laughs> lawyer, you know. But uh, my favorite was Rodney Dangerfield, mm -hmm. and he would be on a Tonight Show, and I was so into him. And so one day when he went to panel, Carson, I don't even know who remembers Carson anymore, sadly. But anyway, yeah. Johnny Carson uh, got him to talk about. His pat his his career in stand up, and he talked about how he used to be uh, go under the name of Jackie Roy as a stand up. Oh right, that's Good Mountains. Yeah, and then he said he has a club in Manhattan called Dangerfields. Mm -hmm. So my little seventeen year old head thought, you know, I know his jokes so well. What if I wrote a couple pages of jokes and sent them to Jack Roy at Dangerfields? Wow! And I got my mom's big clunky typewriter. Wrote a couple, maybe a page or two of jokes. And uh, a couple weeks went by and I kind of forgot about it. Hmm. And then, like, the phone rings. It's like after dinner, and my mom's at the top of the stairs, you know, Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. <laughs> Holy shit. What? 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 And then, Hello? Who's this? Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? Hey, how are you? <laughs> you know. And he kept wow. me on the phone for like 15 minutes. Yeah, your jokes are pretty good, you know, but they're not for me, but I like them, you know. And he he told me about stand-up and where to go. And said, Don't come to my club. It's no good, you know. But, <laughs> uh, he told me about the improv and all the showcase clubs that were going on. This was like 78, something like that. Mm -hmm. So Catch a Rising Star had been open not even that long. There was the comic strip all in New York. Right. Um, and then he sent me a letter, a handwritten letter that basically said, you know, as a stand up, it's going to take a long time to find out what's funny about you or if you're funny at all. Mm -hmm. But that was all the inspiration. Like, I, I guess I really need to do this. You know? Yeah. That's what, yeah. No, I was going to say that's incredible because something like that. I mean, like, I remember, you know, when I when I started doing stand up like just a nod or any kind of approval from somebody would keep you going for, you know, months. Like all, like, you know, if, if somebody that you admired was like, Hey, you know, nice set, that's all you needed. You could, you could bump for the next, like whatever, but that just kept you on this crazy high. So to get a, you know, to get to talk to Rodney and then get a letter from the guy and, you know, have him yeah. steer you must've been amazing. Well, even, even your peers, like, or, or, or like if you're hanging out at a club and the, the, men or women, the guys or girls who have been doing it before you have mm -hmm. and that one day where they go, Hey, hey that was really funny. Even yeah. that is like, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I got to ask you, cause I'm glad you brought the Rodney up and stuff. Um, 
because I ask almost everybody that's on the show because he they talk about how good I didn't get to meet him. He's one of those dudes that like I really wish even even if I wasn't doing stand up at the time at any point in time, I wish I got to meet him because I love Rodney uh, and he's you know, I don't know. There's there's just I heard everybody say he was a very generous guy. He was very good to younger comics. And then you saying that he just actually called you on the phone, even though he was like, you know, um, you know, he said like your jokes are good, but they're not for me or whatever. Just to reach out and do that. I, I, do you feel like that, that that kind of thing is gone in a sense? Like, you know, because Rodney was super nice to young comics. I heard somebody had told me that he would pay comics sometimes, even if they didn't use the jokes. If they wrote a joke, he liked it, give him money for it because he knew it, he'd pay their rent. You know what I mean? Or he just he just loved com com comedians. I, do you see that a lot these days? Like a, somebody like that taking people under their wing? Well, first of all, Rodney would, if you pitched a joke to him and if he had one similar that he's been working on, mm -hmm. that kind of sounds the same or the same idea, he would pay you that way. And wow. That. Yeah. It's funny. I've been so out of the stand-up loop lately. I mean, lately, a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm not even sure exactly who the, except for the few obvious, but all the, all the sort of famous comics right now are from my graduating class so it's it's hard to think of like you know they're my peers so I, I i can't think of and you talked a little bit in the book about your graduating class you were you were around gilbert Gottfried at the time bob odenkirk was your one of your guys right yeah uh ray romano ray romano yeah louis ck sarah silverman larry david um so i got to see all of them at different levels of their career wow uh, I did this fun, stupid thing with uh, Ray one night, and this obviously was way before he was famous, but I was emceeing, and uh, at one point I had him sit in the audience, and then uh, from the stage I introduced, I said, we have a special guest in our audience tonight, a star from Broadway, and I made up a stupid Broadway show name, and I gave him a stupid name, and I said, welcome Bill Cable from the Broadway show, how's your sister? And then uh, the <laughs> The lighting guy would swing the spotlight over and Ray would stand up and do a showbiz mm -hmm. bow. And then later on in the show, I sat him at a different spot in the audience. And then oh I said, we God. have another guest. Uh, he's from the sitcom. Uh, he's here from LA. He's from, uh, you know, whose dog is that? Welcome and make up another name. And then the spotlight would go over to him. And I did it like three times. Wow. I like doing super, you know, uh, Andy Kaufman kind of came back to the club when I was there to kind of wow. reset himself, I guess. I'm not sure, but he wanted to get back to his roots. Mm -hmm. um, so that was after that, Taxi? It was right after Taxi. In fact, uh, Andy, even like hanging out with comics, he still would stay locked into whatever persona or whatever like this is also wrestling time and he had the neck brace on wow and uh he i think trusted me at some point because uh this alongo was he went on letterman and went out like he was like poor he had no place to live he lost <laughs> all his money and he's so he was like sniveling on you know almost right. crying on the show and security took him away and you know and it was obviously all set up because i saw him the next night and it was like uh, they they really thought it, the audience thought it was true <laughs> you know 
So I felt kind of honored that he confided in me for a second. That was great. Did you, did you get to hang out with him much afterward? It was, he was kind of an insular kind of dude, right? Well, the fun part was I got to at the improv in New York. I got to referee a wrestling match. Oh my God. He wrestled a woman from the audience and the stage at the improv is not that much bigger than like a tabletop. Right. So he really got a woman from the audience. I didn't, I didn't know anything about refereeing. He just said, you know, when I give you the signal or I'll kind of let you know, you know, that you can call it. Um, so a woman, it, it was a thousand bucks, you know, if, if he was able to take a woman down. Oh my God. And, uh, so he got on stage and he strutting and doing, woman should be home cooking and cleaning, doing the iron, you know, and the women right. were getting riled and crowding the stage and screaming. It was, you know, scary. And this little woman, just like this little bobcat of a woman came up and they were wrestling. Oh my it God. It was getting scary because he's whacking her around like a bag of laundry, you know, and I'm like, right. He's going to get hurt, man. Oh. And, uh, and I eventually called it. It was like sort of close, but I just couldn't, I didn't want to see anybody get killed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and did you, I mean, he didn't, some of those women he didn't know, right? I'm assuming. And some he did. Um, I think most, uh, certainly when he did it like that in the club, he didn't know them. Okay. Um, yeah. The ones he did on TV though, he like, it was usually, I know, always I'm, wondered. I'm not even sure, you know, that's crazy, man. That must have been a see. That was that's like that time always inter interested me in like stand up and stuff like that because it seemed like the comics ran the clubs instead of vice versa. You know what I mean? Which like nowadays it's like unless you have a million followers or you're you know you actually can sell out whatever you know then they kind of let you do what you want. But like for the most part, it's get in, get out, and we gotta we gotta uh, you know sell salads. Yeah, you know I I don't. Do you have you been in the world or have you dealt with like bringer shows? You... When I started, I did bringer shows. Um, I, I did a few bringer shows and I got lucky enough to be picked up by a headliner who just thought I was funny and took me on the road with him. So I got taken out of the bringer scene pretty uh, early on, but I did a few. What, uh, so what is that like? Is it, is it really you got to bring in 10 people that are going to pay the minimum or? Yeah, it? it's. It's it was the word it was kind of dehumanizing too because like from I mean I'm a, the same way you just said you were a comedy nerd so was I like I I you know used to you know buy any kind of book that anything had to do with stand up uh, when I was in high school I had Franklin Ajay's book uh, you know and carried that around with me in my book bag more than any of my other books <laughs> um, and then uh, you know so I I had you know heard about the way that everybody else had come up doing it. You know, you go to these open mics, you wait in line, you, you know, you do whatever you have to do to get on stage. If you're funny, you get on. And then I started doing stand up, and it was basically like, you know, you have to pay your almost pay to get on stage to the point where if you don't bring 10 people, you don't get to fucking go on or, um, you know, and that was it. Like if you, they'd give you five minutes and you had to bring 10 people, right? Some clubs would be like, you have to bring 15 if you want to go on because of the stature of the club. And it was like, if you didn't bring them, they wouldn't let you, they either wouldn't let you go on. It was their choice. They wouldn't let you go on or they'd reduce your time. So if only three people showed up, they'd be like, well, you get three minutes. And then you have to explain to the three people why they're not getting to see you do a full show and why, you know, it's, it's so humiliating that you can't even concentrate on your own act. Um, they, are they allowed to like, if you bring people, is it still guaranteed that you'll get on? 
yeah if you bring people it's a guarantee that you'll get on unless uh like somebody bumps you um which is you know i only had that happen once and i was like oh that's kind of and they're like well next time and i'm like do i have to bring people next time and they're like yeah <laughs> like, this fucking sucks uh what what changes how does that turn around uh, um it, it sometimes it doesn't i mean i i used to i knew people who kept doing it forever uh, to the point where like I was like, you know, the club's using you at this point, right? I'm like, you know, like you're not developing because all you're doing, like it, it sucks because you don't develop when you bring people because your brain is going, well, I want my friends came here to see me. I want to do well. I'm going to do the same act. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's a, it's, you're just doing the same five minutes, but you're so new. You should be doing, in my opinion, you should be doing one other thing. You should be writing all the time, but your the pressure is like, I want the club to see me do well. So I'm going to do what works. And I want my friends to see me do well. They paid to see me. So I'm going to do when it works. And then you just keep doing that ad nauseum over and over and over again. And then, you know, you're some people don't grow. Right, right. Because that was the beauty of what was happening in New York and just before the boom. And all of a sudden these places opened up. But a lot of them were places where you were allowed to bomb. You know what I mean? You were yeah. allowed to fail, which is what you really kind of need to do. You need to be able to just screw around and say anything and see what works you know absolutely i i had a i, I thankfully i because i um I, I started in new york and i was doing the clubs there i did a few bringer shows and then um i started calling random like other clubs like in new because i lived in new jersey but i just go in time um and uh and i started doing it that way and i would just call their clubs so like rascals you ever done rascals in in new jersey cherry hill and yeah so there was Cherry Hill and Montclair, and I just called, and I'm still friends with the guy who used to book it then, but um, I was just like, hey, I'm really new. Can I get a guest spot? And then I got a guest spot, and the headliner there, that I, I got a, a few lucky situations where the headliner there liked me and was like, why don't you come for the weekend and open? And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. So I got to come open in a real show, and, and then there was a guy I knew at the Improv before it turned into Broadway in New York, mm -hmm. and um, he would put me, he would let me go and, and play play there and so and uh i got to do time and that's where i got to bomb and then everywhere else was like i didn't want to do the other clubs because they would make you bring this guy liked me at the improv and that's the one he wanted to take me on the road with him and he was like why don't you come out on the road and we'll we'll just do some gigs together and you'll um you're frozen. stretch your legs out oh am i frozen god damn it okay am i back you're back the okay, trick is not to that. move that's the trick, you know, yes. anyway, and it'll save your, um, but maybe what's good about that a little bit is what you're saying is it also kind of teaches you about it's, it's another layer of the bullshit of show business in a way where mm -hmm. you have to just learn how to take care of yourself and figure it out yourself and not depend on as much as you can, not have to depend on clubs and bookers yeah. and all yeah. that stuff, you know, so you just learn, I guess. You know? it's it's definitely i mean i i kind of value that too you're absolutely right because anytime anybody asks me you know guys that i know that are coming up and and whatever i always just tell them now i'm like and it sounds kind of cheesy but i'm basically just like you know there's there's never been a club or bar that could make or break your entire career so don't stress over it because you know they always i mean i get it they run a business too but they want to make it seem like you're in the you know the, at the Met, you know, every, every place wants your a game and then you makes you kind of whatever, but I'm, 
I was like, I, I got a little bit of that when I was younger. Then I was like, no, nah, fuck these places. Like you could still get, you could get good anywhere as long right. as you just, you know, do your shit. Right. Because when I started at, I was 17, I guess. And I was wow. still living in my hometown in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And this was before the boom. And this was before every building had a comedy club in it, you know? Right. So I did kind of the same thing. I'm like, well, fuck it. I want to get on stage. So what do I do? I would go to these shitty bars around town where mm -hmm. they had music, where they had a live band. And I'd say to the manager, you know, when they go on a break, could I go up and, and tell jokes? Wow. You know, it, I was so in love with comedy. And I, the the people that were coming up during my era when I was little, I remember seeing like the first time seeing Leno. Freddie Prinze was a big influence. Uh, That's awesome. Lane Boozler, I remember. And uh, – and it seemed to me like back then, I'm talking like the old guy, back in my day, <laughs> uh, but everybody seemed really different. You know, everybody had a really different take, you know, mm -hmm. um, and maybe I just haven't seen enough lately, but a, a lot of it feels the same to me. You know what I mean? You're right. You know? I, it's. I, I'm, um, you know, my friends and I talk about it all the time where you like, you know, half of the time and I love, you know, I like Colbert a lot and, uh, you know, he's got the late show or whatever, but, uh, if you walk out of the room half the time and they got a string, if you, if you just listen to a string of comics on the late show that are on there, I couldn't tell you, I can tell them apart. They all have the same cadence. I don't know if that's just because the, the way the TV industry works now, where it's not like they just want to play it safe, but everybody's got the same rhythm. They figured out kind of like how to do it. So it doesn't matter. You know, even people that I know who have done it, who I know sound completely different when they're on stage, I think they just get on those shows and they're just like, I'm going to do it ABC and then, and then a D, you know what I mean? And then it's, it's well, really, maybe it's, homogenous. you know, I think in my experience, when you start and the same for me, you do in the beginning sound like your favorite comedians, you know, mm -hmm. which is fine. It's a good security blanket to get you started. Yeah. But at some point, point you got to crack through and find out, you know, what's funny about yourself, you know, mm -hmm. use, use other people's voices to get your confidence. And maybe, maybe they're just getting on TV too soon. Maybe that's it. Yeah, that could be it too. It's, it's, yeah, it's just weird. I wish, um, I know what you mean. Like, you know what? It's almost like the same thing with bands sometimes. Like, I feel like in the, and I, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I think you could tell the difference between like the bands and the roadies. You know what I mean? And now they all kind of look the same. And each band, like, like even in the 80s, like all the bands from the 80s, man, you could tell who they were by their look, their music yeah. video, you know, whatever it is. And, and for some reason now it's just, they all kind of just dress the same, kind of almost sound the same. And that's yeah. from I'm 36. So like, that's what I, I've just, it's just weird because I love, I love 60s, 70s, and 80s music, stuff like that too. And I, I'm a big fan of the nineties. I just like music in general, the same way I like comedy. But I feel like if you're a fan of that stuff, you can't help but see there's this like homogenous, like kind of what sells sort of thing. Right. Um, right. Especially you know, now because we've lost the, uh, the kid idolizing rock bands and wanted to become a rock star. Yeah. Uh, it might be because kids are maybe too lazy <laughs> to want to learn <laughs> guitar. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but comedy has kind of taken the place of that, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not even sure how many comics are kind of out there now. Is it tens of thousands? Or? Yeah. yeah. It's, 
Yeah, there is because there's also uh, I don't know if you're aware of internet comedians, but that's a thing now too. Where like you're like, oh, do you do stand? Oh, you're like, oh, you're cool. You're a comedian. Like, do you are you, act, you stand up or whatever? Oh, no, no, no. Just post on Instagram. You're like, oh. So what do they? Just do stand up in their bedroom. Yeah. Well, it's not even stand up. I mean, they consider themselves comedians. Like one guy does it really well that I know, um, and he's got this huge fan base. But all he does is post comedic videos, and then uh, he started doing stand up because he would just have the, he had this fan base. So they were built in. They'd come to see him, and he would say what he said in the video, but he would put it in an hour long set, and then uh, and they get stage. Yeah, and they get stage time exactly. And it's crazy. And that's the thing that kind of, I mean, think about it. If you were starting at that point and you had to deal with that kind of shit too, like it, on one hand, I'm like, kudos to you because if you can sell out clubs, um, that's obviously what everybody wants. But it's crazy to me that like, for me, like I've, I've opened for like, a, I opened for a YouTube star once and, uh, I can't tell you how infuriating it was because it was like, you know, the the thing was like sold out. I did it at like the club owner. They gave him like a Thursday or something like that or whatever it was. And then they were like, Hey, would you come down and open or whatever? Cause I don't, we don't, we don't know what this guy's going to do. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to do, but you know, sold out and his fan base was young. So I got on stage and I swear to God, it was, it was a great show. I had a great set because I don't think they'd seen comedian, a comedian before like comedy, comedy, you know what I mean? And then, so it was like a weird kind of thing because then he went on and did what he does in on his YouTube channel. And he's got songs and, you know, whatever the hell is going on. And then uh, they came off stage and he got pictures taken with him. But they were also coming up to me. And they were like, do you do this all the time? I'm around here. And I'm thinking, like, I've been doing this for 15 years. Like, <laughs> yes, I do this all the time. Like, but they didn't know. They, they just, they weren't, they weren't comedy fans. They were fans of his. Right. Um. I don't. I don't even know the path now of what comics th think or where they go or what they want to do. Do most of them think, you know, I want to do the the you know Chappelle route of just you know be, book arenas, book book Madison Square Garden. That is that a lot of what the goal is. Um, I, I I'll tell you right now. I don't. I think the goal is to get a fan base, and I I hate it because. Uh, I just thought I just wanted to get good at stand up, and I, you know, I and still, no matter how long you're doing it, you just want to be a better comedian. And now it's very much geared toward like you're not just it's not just writing material anymore. It's not just about getting to a gig and making those connections. You have to be your own videographer. You have to be your own video editor. You have to make memes. You have to make sure your social media is up and any new, you know. So this whole apparatus is like to get followers, and if you get followers then people will hopefully pay attention to you and clubs will book you on the on the idea that you can bring a crowd, right? But I mean, I have 20,000 something followers on Instagram, right? That I've developed over the years. I'm happy with that. I, you know, I'm glad I've got that. But it doesn't, it just doesn't, it's weird that they use that to quantify anything because I'll be doing it. I, I know I've, I've toured across the country or whatever, but they'll be like, I'll book a gig in Ohio. And they're like, well, how many followers do you have? And I'm like, well, you know, 20K, but not in, you know, uh, Rochester, Ohio, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. just like, yeah, I'm like yeah. I don't know where they are, but it is something that I don't know that I don't know that the business end of it knows how to quantify it just yet. So it's, it's this huge facade. Most of the time, I think Madison square garden is something that obviously everybody looks forward to, but like 
right now you just want people to show up. Like I want to have an, you know, I, I started doing this during the pandemic because I never thought I'd be sitting. I didn't want to sit at a desk. I wanted to travel and do comedy and write and pitch shows and, you know, um, and then COVID hit and got sidelined. So, I mean, and this, I love doing because I get to talk to guys like you that I've never met before and it's amazing, but, um, you know, you, you hope you get an audience. That's all. And, and um, I mean, this is obvious, but it's worth, repeating and uh, it's sort of the words of what Rodney told me, but it's, it's so true, but it's really difficult. And it's like, no matter what you're, you're doing, whether it's figuring out how to get audience and how to manipulate the, your media and all that stuff, it's really about finding your own voice, just finding yes. your own point of view. And it makes it harder, you know, mm -hmm. but if you can tap into it, then you, you have everything, you know, yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I've been writing for, I mean, since I was a kid. And most of the time, I'm not even sure if I'm doing it on the page. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What's funny or my point of view. Because also, too, it just, even like with stand up and all the things you have to deal with, with working in network television or the big streaming companies, you have to please so many people. Right. And so much of the time is spent like, shifting away from what your instincts are and overthinking what they want and what they like and what they need yeah. and getting tangled up in it. And so I, I've kind of used the pandemic to like, like I got to use this time to just find myself again on the page, you know, um, like I've been rewriting this one script, just, this is like the fifth time I've written it over almost from scratch, just wow. like trying to listen to like, what, what is funny? What's, what do I like? What, how do I get, those voices out of my head of like what executives are always saying to me and what my agent says I should be writing and what Fox is buying and what, you know? Yeah. Um, Do you find that to be freeing though, that you know that like, I mean, even like, you know, getting that stuff out of your head or do you feel like it, it, it hinders you sometimes too? Cause you just want to get a thing sold. Well, I, I guess I have to do both. I mean, yeah. I, have to no, both. No. I mean, I gotta, I got, you know, I gotta pay my mortgage. So it's, you know, <laughs> um, so, but the, the other problem though is, you know, as me personally, as a writer, like I could be on one show and be like the star of the room. Mm -hmm. And then I go to another show and I'm like, I have nothing to say here. Yep. I'm just not connecting. I'm not connecting with the show. I'm not connecting with the people in the room. I'm, I'm kind of fucked. You know, it's, it's a yep. weird yeah. phenomenon, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there's some writers that know how to instantly just connect everywhere. And I guess they feel maybe they've worked their point of view enough where they know how to manipulate it to what they want on their page. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. So I'm, I'm this far into the business and still figuring it out. <laughs> I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean though, because I mean, you obviously got way more experience than I do. And I, and I'm happy to pick your brain about it too, by the way. So I might do that a little bit more now. <laughs> um, but I, the pandemic did the same kind of for me in a way where I was like, all right, look, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I think that one of the things that I, I try to remind other people and myself too about the pandemic is that, um, a lot of the clubs that would abuse comedians in a way, you know what I mean? Like not pay you or, you know, that kind of stuff, they closed, you know, and then we kind of persevered. I mean, we're the ones who bought equipment started doing online standup, started interviewing. So that I feel that I feel like put a lot of stuff in perspective where, you know, it gave everybody kind of a equal playing field or like a different set of value in, in themselves just to be like, you know what? 
I outlasted that building. I hate <laughs> going uh -huh. to, and, and, you know, and the, and the shitty owner who didn't think of whatever. And then on top of that too, like you said, with the writing stuff, rewriting stuff, I had pitched. Um, uh, so I had a, a short film on Amazon prime called dup it. And this is, I'll snip this. So it's not about me, but, uh, <laughs> but I, um, I, I had that out there and right before COVID hit, um, so the whole film is basically 11 minutes, it's a short film, and it's about um, this guy is dealing with depression and manifests itself into uh, a puppet that he calls Duppets, depression puppet. I'm a huge fan of Henson, me and my writing partner, so we we love that idea. Uh, and then the Henson company actually saw it, and they invited me out, so I went out there to pitch it as a series. We were kind of getting things off, and then COVID hit, and now dead in the water. But since that's happened, I've literally done the same thing. We're like rewritten because we had like a pilot and like all this other stuff and like the season two mapped out and, and it changed everything. It changed. I mean, not just like the, I'm talking like, you know, I'm not about implementing like uh, pandemic stuff in there, but just like everything perspective, going back through stuff, trying to figure out what, you know, like you said, your voice is. So it, it was interesting. Right. I mean, I'm kind of jealous of your generation. Not that I can't can still do that, but you have all this technology at your, you know, at your feet, mm -hmm. you know, you can figure out different ways, like what you're doing now, of like how to get yourself out there and figure it out. And right. um, like when I, the first time I made a short film, in fact, if you can, you maybe can't see it over my shoulders, a, a Bolex camera. Oh, okay. There. Yeah. Uh, MOS wind up camera. You get wow. it's 16 millimeter. You get uh you know, 35 seconds of roll time. Mm. And I shot a short film on that. It was four minutes. I don't, I forget. It cost wow. $7,000. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, I had a friend who was a DP on a sitcom and I like all of a sudden we're buying light packages and dolly tracks. And I'm going, what the fuck? I just wanted wow. to do a couple of clamp on, you know, gorilla style. And, um, so I it cost a us a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Without a, and we were like, oh, it's not so, but, but that's seven grand, man. Wow. That makes me feel a little bit better about having to only spend a hundred. Yeah. I mean, and I did it only to like learn, you know, this yeah. was, I forget, in the 90s, early 90s or something. Um, but yeah. So my sons, I have twin boys in their 20s, and they, uh, I guess because they lived, they had kind of a great childhood. They got to hang out with Matt Groening and Seth MacFarlane and, you know, they could talk to wow. Matt Groening. They're little kids and they're like, why are the, why are the Simpsons yellow? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and they would hang out at table reads with me and stuff like that, sit right at the table and uh, uh, watch me direct and stuff like that. So they, it was, so it kind of seeped into their blood. Yeah. So I have one son that's been doing stand-up, or at least he was before the pandemic. Yeah. And he's already written a screenplay and a bunch of stuff. And my other son wants to get into production. But um, we incredible. used to, uh, every year, uh, New Year's Eve, we'd have a party at our house. And every year, for at least four or five years when they were little, we would make these little short films, video films, to play at the uh, party. So they got to, I got to just kind of show them the basics of how it works and how to be silly. And, you know, I turned them on to shows like Tim and Eric when they were small. Oh my God. So good. And, uh, Bob Odenkirk is the one who discovered them and 
uh, if you'll see in the book, of course, Bob wrote the forward and yep. he and I have been friends since the eighties. So I got to take them over to the, to the stage where they do the show and meet Tim and Eric. Mm-hmm. And they saw it was like a little storefront on Santa Monica Boulevard. It was like the size of a, you know, a garage, maybe not even that big. And I did everything in there. So again, they're little kids seeing all this stuff. So it, it's all just seeped into their DNA. So, you know, that's what they, they, at least at the moment, that's what they're thinking of doing. That's incredible though. You can't beat, that's like an education you can't get anywhere else unless it's, uh, I've talked to a couple other, uh, you know, comics and stuff like that who've got kids who have gone into, uh, you know, stand up and stuff. And I just, I mean, that experience is invaluable and it's almost kind of, one of them, I think there's only one who was like, God, no, I don't want to be a comic. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're mathematicians and they're great. And, and I'm just like, Oh, why? That'd be so exciting. Um, and it's weird that you said the Bob Odenkirk, uh, and not, the, not weird, but you know, Bob Odenkirk wrote your forward. When you sent me your book, it was like, must've been kismet. Cause it was right at the time where he started talking about his experience at SNL, which I'd never heard. Of. I had never heard him do that. So yeah. were you, were you friends with him at the time? Like he was trying to get himself fired from, you know, or almost got himself fired basically from the show and hated it there. Or was it? He didn't hate it there. And it was certainly stressful for him because I, he was very generous to me then because he started doing, he came from Chicago, came to New York to work mm-hmm. on SNL and was doing stand up uh, at the improv. Right. And that's where I got to know him. And then I, that's where I decided I wanted to be. I just decided that I, that I was going to start leaning more towards writing. So I was like in his face asking about what's it like writing there? What's it like day to day? Well, you know, so he would invite me to the show all the time to the point where I just felt like I worked there and ended up writing a weekend update and, and, uh, writing some promos with Dana Carvey, you know, I felt like I, nice. like I would go to the show every week live and just wander the, the, the stage and go into the director's booth. I mean, cause I kind of knew like, this is going to be part of my life. I know I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, in this world. So right. it was great. So he was very helpful in that way, but he, he didn't, it didn't seem like he ever, I don't know if he said that on, was it on Stern or something? He yeah, said it was on Stern. Or, Maybe not hate, but he, he didn't, he said he didn't feel like he was miserable. He basically said. Yeah. In truth, he wanted to, and thought he could segue into being on the, on the cast. That's uh, really what he was hoping for. That makes sense then. I mean, that, that I, I could understand that kind of frustration. So he thought he was just going to go from a writer into the cast and then it never Right, because it, it's happened, you know. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I think. Uh, who got who got hired? Was it Sandler and Spade that got hired as writers and then worked their way into the cast? Yeah. 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 Um, um. That's so you got to do Weekend Update when Dana. Uh, that was uh, Dennis Miller. Dennis Miller was on, and then Dana. Okay, did you do the um? Did you write for it, uh the two of them or whatever when they did their when Dana would imitate? No, Dennis? no, no. I just sent in jokes. I mean, I oh, that's cool. I wasn't even on staff or anything. It just, you know, oh, okay. De- uh, uh, Dennis Miller was taking outside jokes, and uh, mostly because he knew me from hanging out there so much. And right, that's um, cool. Yeah, Bob was like, uh, there was a moment like not long before the air, they went to air, and then uh, Dennis on stage crosses over to Bob, you know, and uh, and. Uh, Dennis Miller calls him Odie. Hey, Odie. And uh, <laughs> he had a picture, the black and white picture, just a random, like, 
an Asian person with like a straw hat in a rice paddy mm-hmm. had a stick with two buckets hanging. Right? It just just mm-hmm. ran the picture and he goes, Odie, what do you got? And shows him the picture. And he goes, uh, Bucket Man, Bucket Man, run for your life. It's Bucket Man. So then, you know, eight minutes later on Weekend Update, picture pops on and this Dennis Miller goes, Bucket Man, Bucket Man. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. So did you transition into writing? You were saying before, I mean, you did that just specifically because you hated the road. You got tired of it earlier than, than uh, or was there like an incident that you were like, I'm not fucking doing this anymore. I'm going to be a writer. Well, uh, part of it is just really trying as best I could to listen to my instincts, you know, mm-hmm. and um, at one point I really lost interest in making the audience laugh. Mm-hmm. And it started to turn in to try to make the comedians in the back of the room laugh. That became kind of the, you know, so just doing idiotic stuff that, you know, almost right. like inside baseball to, mm-hmm. you know, so that was more satisfying to me. So uh, it felt like I was so in love with stand up, but at some point I felt like I did everything I wanted to do with it. You know, I played so many different kinds of arenas and audiences. Right. You know, 3,000 people to, you know, six people at a, you know, bar mitzvah or, you know, it's so I, I felt like I, I got all the excitement I was going to get out of that. In fact, the defining moment was uh, I was in L.A. working on my first sitcom. And because of my New York status at the improv, I was getting pretty good spots at night, you know, mm-hmm. at the L.A. improv. And uh Spots sort of started to get later and later. I, uh, I wasn't into it and as much. And there was one night where I got bumped and it started, you know, in New York, when you got bumped, the, the New York club was like a clubhouse. So mm-hmm. part of it was hanging out with friends and just being into that environment. And, but I didn't feel that in L.A. And you get bumped and it felt like I was, you know, waiting for a delayed flight at an airport. It was just like... <laughs> And I got on late and I did what I would do in New York. You know, you, you fuck around, you do some stuff, you know, that works, some things you thought that you could work out and just random, just playing around. Right. So then it was a weird moment. I get off stage and, you know, it was eight people. And, but as I'm walking past whoever ran the sound system and the lights, I didn't know who it was, but he started like patting me on the shoulder and like, like as if I'm going to commit suicide or something. He's like, he goes, don't worry, man. You know, you just do it. You do it for a few years. You figure it out. And like, I'm already 10 years in and I'm like, right. right. And it's like, it's like saying you got to start over. And I saw, I saw the stand up ghost, the spirit inside of me. I almost visually saw it leave my body and just go up through the this roof of the improv and just, go away forever. Wow. And I never did stand up again. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, although you, I did, I did do it a couple years ago because my sons had never seen me do it live. So I did, uh, it, did it feel good? good? Well, it was great. You know, the lesson is sort of, I don't know if it's a lesson, but it's a realization that it, I was in such a position of where there was nothing to lose mm-hmm. that there was no way anything could go wrong. Hmm. It was actually just great and it was fun. And it made me think like if I was able to get to that place when I was young, yeah, like where it's like, fuck it, 
you know, who cares? Then you, then you, I think would soar, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's almost the kind of attitude that you have to have in a way, even though, you know, because uh, like I, I've seen guys who that that's the kind of thing. Like, I mean, as comics, we observe people, we observe behavior. And, um, it was, it was one of those things where I had seen a lot of guys who were, you know, I've been on the road with a lot of people who were super bitter and right away in my head, I was like, I don't want to be that guy. Like, that's why I was glad. I mean, you started younger than I did, but I was, I was 20 and I was like, okay, definitely don't want to be this fucking guy because I'm enjoying it. I love comedy and I love watching comedy still. So I was like, let's try to avoid that thing. And the other thing was the other kind of guy was the, um, was the dude who just kind of did whatever the club wanted. You know what I mean? Or, or whatever the audience kind of wanted. And I was right. like, and, and like, sometimes you think like, maybe I need to do that kind of stuff. Cause you just, just trying to figure it out, but you want to work. And those guys seems to do it all the time. And then at some point it just kind of clicked. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy either because that guy is going to be 50 something years old. And yeah. he's going to be playing the back of that fucking Italian restaurant for the rest of his life. And, uh, I can't do like, I, I would really rather just not do it if that was the case. Yeah, so, I had, I, I had yeah. friends like that, and I and they would say, "Man, I killed." I know, but you were at, uh, you know, you know, laugh, laughing spleens. At, you know, <laughs> you know, you were at uh, Mister Shut Up and Laughs. You know, for forty people, does it matter? Yeah. You know, they they didn't think big picture. Yep. Know? And something just happened to me recently, um, and I'm I can't say his name, who it was, but I got a call from a club owner who was like, I can tell you who it is afterward, but I, but he, but she was, she's a good friend. And she was just like, Hey, um, would you mind opening for, you know, uh, so-and-so or whatever, you know, he's got a lot of older guys that open for him and we could use like a younger comic, yada, yada, yada. And I've been headlining for like five, six years at this, you know, and I'm just like, so, but it was a club owner that I know would be a favor. And I kind of was like, she's like, yeah, it's just after the pandemic thing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, or, or whatever, I guess. And then I hung up the phone and I got so fucking sad because I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And I was like, and that guy, and I, and I don't, I don't not, I don't dislike the guy. You know what I mean? Like I get it and I understand he's been doing it forever. And I had, you know, I understand the hierarchy and stuff too, but I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. And so I'm like, okay, then don't like in my head, I was like, then I'm not going to, I'm going to keep doing the clubs that I like. And now I want to do what you just said, where you're like, I want to do smaller theaters and, or like a re like outside. And that's what I'm going to work toward, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And it, right. but it was like a really, like, I got sad, man. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a fucking bummer. That's kind of the key. You know, it's like you have all these ladders in front of you that will take you somewhere. Mm -hmm. and it's like, if you're lucky enough to find which ladder to go up, you know, rather than start climbing one and go, no, and you go back down and then, you know, right. You find that ladder that really suits you. That's going to take you to where you want to go. That's always great. Yeah. Yeah, there's exactly. A, there's another phenomenon too. I, I've seen with stand up, So maybe this can be a cautionary tale, but mm -hmm. you know, part of, part of success in general, I guess, but as a writer or as a stand up, you're going to always feel anxiety and like, and my, Good enough? Am I gonna fucking make it? Am I fucked? I'm, you know, so mm -hmm. it's like constantly generating that feeling. So that's really there. I've learned to keep you going and keeping you thinking about what you need to do. Keep right. fixing things and keep working on things. You need to feel that. 
I've known so many comics for very, you know, when they started when they were young and they smoked a lot of pot, right? And I, I don't have anything against smoking pot, but they would smoke it to kind of quell that feeling. You know? yeah. yeah. And then they just stopped growing. You know, mm -hmm. they, they shut off that noise that are that's telling them, figure it out, man, just keep going and fight it. And, you know, uh, so uh, for you kids out there, smoking the Mary Jane <laughs> and, and taking the yellow, whatever the kids do today, shooting the hoppers, <laughs> shooting the, the, the beanie babies in your arm or whatever the fuck you do, you goddamn hippies. I love that. That's, but you're absolutely right. Like I, you do need to feel that kind of pressure and that kind of shit. Like I, when I was, this is great too. Cause I want to touch on your book and talk a, a little bit more about all that stuff. But, um, I assumed when I was younger, I thought, I don't know if this is like a young person's thing too. You can tell me if you felt like this, but I thought when you did something and you did it well, you felt it, they were feelings. I thought that writers felt like writers. And they, and that was a special feeling that you had when you were a writer, you know, does that make any sense? Like, and then I didn't know that when you're a writer, you feel like shit all like, and, and you feel, uh, anxious and you're, you never think your stuff is good. And at some point you just have to fucking go and hand it in. Cause you do have a deadline and you're, you know, you can't look anymore. I didn't know that. I just thought writers could write and they felt like writers. And then at one point I was talking to an old and, and I had a world of teacher that I still keep in touch with. She's, she's, she's like one of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. Um, but I was like, I don't, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I was like, I don't really ever consider myself a writer. I hate doing that. Cause I just, I, I, I throw something out and I do it again. I look at it again and I do it again. I'm constantly rewriting. And she's like, that's what writer, like, that's what they do. And I was like, Oh really? I thought you just fucking had the confidence and just did it. So no. Of course, writing is rewriting, is the old saying. Yeah. You know, I keep reminding my son. Mm -hmm. um, there was something <laughs> I was going to say about Yeah, I forgot. Um, but, yeah, you know, I yeah, – well, you don't know, but I am – you know, <laughs> constantly when you're writing, there you just have to – these demons are just flying all over the place trying to fuck you yeah. up, you know. Um, so – the best part is not writing, but you've written something. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, when you're yeah. done, that's the good part when it's out there. But yep. Um, but it it even gets a little harder as you get older in a way. Sometimes you know where because you have you have so much input from so many places and so many different ways you can go now, and so many ways you can figure it out that now there's more choices there's more mm -hmm. concerns there's more ptsd there's you know <laughs> not, there's actually more demons as you go yeah um in fact uh la is you know makes you feel disposable oh god yeah and it's part of why mike mike nichols mm -hmm. world famous writer director lived yeah. in new york he just felt better in new york because he, as soon as he would come to LA and he'd get off the plane, the first thing that hits him is like, how am I doing? Am I, am I okay? Is this, yep. you know, I lived uh, there for two years and I felt like somebody had said this to me and I, I, I was like, it's supposed to be comforting uh, <laughs> because it was like, they were like, every time you go out in LA, you're auditioning for something. Like whether you're at the grocery store, whether you're ever like the, the entire, all of LA is an office. And I was like, fuck, that's the worst feeling and that's how i felt the entire two years i lived out there 
like I was always, you know, whatever. And and then what's worse is when you're not working, like when stuff, when I first got out there, I, I, you know, pitch meetings and you know, the whole spiel you go, you, you take the water, you know what I mean? Like where every, as a, you know, I'm on a water bottle tour basically of all the fucking networks and all their shit. And then, um, but when you stop, you feel like a piece of shit because you, every, you know, no matter where you go, somebody's always talking about doing something and some of the, everybody's asking you what you're working on and what's going, what's going on. And, and then plus adjusting to the LA comedy scene too. I, I luckily, do you know, uh, uh Pat Barker? Mm-hmm. So he's a, uh, he, he wrote for uh, like a couple HBO sports shows where everybody's a, you know, he was at the comedy store. I'd known him when I started doing stand up. He was a Philly guy and I was in New York and then, uh, uh, I'd ran into him at the comedy store. I had no idea he moved to LA, right? I, we just, you know, you lose touch with other comedians or whatever. Moved to LA, got married, had a kid. And then I ran into the comedy store and I was like, holy shit. We're like, oh my God. Cause you know, East coast guy. You're like, oh my God, this is so great. So then, uh, he, he's like, how long have you been out here? And I'm like, oh man, I've, I'm like out here for three weeks. And he's like, you bombing. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like every fucking day. Like, and he goes, just let me get you. He got me like a spot at the comedy store. That he was like, uh, he's like, once you start doing the clubs, he's like, it'll be once you get into a club, you'll be fine. And he's like, because I was doing like a, a, a hostel in Santa Monica, you know, just getting all these little things here and there. And I was just fucking eating it. And then, you know, once I got into the ice house, it felt more natural and magic coming magic club, whatever. But yeah, um, yeah LA's a fucking hole sometimes, like when you're when you're younger, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a factory town, basically, you know, yeah. and it's where corporate meets creative it gets really hard i was Mm -hmm. uh i was developing a show with adam sandler for comedy central it was gay robot (laughs) it was animated thing and uh and and nick swardson was the gay robot right and it there was so many factions involved it was like comedy central then there was a studio and it was sony and it was like so i get on a phone for notes and at one point there was 11 people on the phone wow and i'm like i can't we're not going to get anything done you know yeah um it's it's impossible it's just impossible to you know and maybe some people are better at that but at one point i just said you know i can i can only get give me three people on the phone or we're just not going to get anything yeah you know it's too many, it, it's too many people involved in that kind of stuff. And I haven't, I haven't even been on it. Like I, I had something, um, you know, that I had pitched or whatever and, uh, to ish TV, whatever the hell that is now. I don't even know if it's still around. Um, and it was about to be sold and it got to the lawyers and then they were like, yeah, we're going to have to switch some stuff. You have to change it. And then I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Like it was like a minor fix. The show was. I don't know. It was, it was like a, it was like a minor fix. I had, I had a, it's not going anywhere. So I had a thing for like, it was going to be called like two weeks notice. And it was about uh, helping people. Remember when the dude from jet blue quit one day by literally opening a can of beer, hit uh, telling everybody to fuck off and then hitting the inject button and sliding down the, I don't know if you remember that news story. Vaguely. vaguely. Yeah. It was like, it was like around that time. So it was like the greatest, you know, uh, quitting of a job ever. And it took on this whole thing. And I wanted to do kind of like a show around because then it spiraled into like other people posting their I'm quitting my job. And it was like millennials are doing it or whatever. And so, you know, somebody had told their boss, I was like, this whole thing. So I'm like, oh, that'd be a cool thing to do. So it was like when I was early trying to pitch stuff and I did that and I was like, yeah, let's do it. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, and then we'll help people quit their job. We'll get a, everything. You know, when you're starting out, you're like a panel of comedians because you want your friends to work. So I'm like, 
doing that kind of thing. And then um, they were like, well, how do we film somebody quitting their job? It's like a legal thing, you know, whatever. So I rewrote it and then I rewrote it again and then I rewrote it again. And then the lawyers were still like, absolutely not. And then I was like, just tell me what you wanted to be like, I can fix it if you want me to fix it. And by the end of it, they just given up on it. And I was like, what the heck? Like they made me rewrite it like six. Seven, and then I was like, it's too many people telling me too many different things. And you know, right. It's, it's yeah, I've, been shows, I've been on shows where there were so many different entities. And I, I had enough experience in that where it's like, all right, I'm not going to hang anything on my office wall. <laughs> Cause I know where this is going. Yeah. Uh, we developed an animated thing with uh, Nicolas Cage a couple of years ago. Oh, nice. For Fox. Love Nick Cage. That was like a crazy journey. Oh, that must have been amazing. Just, He's the best. It took, God, could it have been two years maybe? Wow. Uh, but then, you know, we would we would wait for notes and then uh, call his manager or whatever and be like, well, he's not reading right now. He's sad. <laughs> You know, and then right. it's like, well, what's happening now? Well, he was shooting in Bulgaria and broke his ankle, so he's not available. You know, just oh my god! And, uh, and then uh, that's ridiculous. The rough part was he was finally, you know, on board, and Fox liked the script, and it got to where like I got all my voice actor friends from like Futurama and everything to do a table read at Fox, and mm -hmm. uh, I even got uh, uh, I forget her name. But anyway, and I, I, you know, I kind of said to all of them, like, Nicholas Cage is very mercurial, you know, anything could happen, but it's <laughs> scheduled for, you know, Wednesday at nine o'clock, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then the day before, of course, Nicholas Cage is, oh, you know what? I don't want to do this. Oh, my God. I take it back. He's not the best. <laughs> That's fucking horseshit. So that was the end of that. But God damn. Uh, I'm. I don't know if it's for better or for worse, but everything, every project, I always like. I'm always waiting for a shoe to drop because that's yeah. just how it goes a lot of the sure. time. You know. Yeah, I want to get to your. I want to get to your book. I want to say this one quick thing because it's so. I uh, do you remember when CISO was around? NBC streaming platform CISO. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I walked in there at a at a meeting to go, you know, at a, another series that I was gonna be working on or doing whatever. And when I walked into the building, uh, they had boxes on their like it was it was like a, basically almost like a warehouse. And I was like, hmm, they're either just moving in, <laughs> or this isn't gonna get picked up. And then when I get there, the guy was just like, hey. You want any chapsticks or CISO pens? And I was just called my manager and I was like, they're handing out gift. Like, I this isn't going anywhere. Can we just get out of this? <laughs> and then it closed and then CISO folded like a month and a half later. But it was, I'm like, why well, have the meeting? Well, I'm not gonna save it. <laughs> like you, you really have to, and everyone should kind of get in that head of like, you have to just laugh at that shit. Yeah. Oh, hilarious. Um like recently I I uh met with uh, someone who had an animated series picked up for Netflix. Mm -hmm. We hit it off at the meeting and it was like a great thing. And then we let's work together. And then the sexual harassment on thing happened on his end. And then goodbye. <laughs> oh God. So dude, it's so funny. I had the same thing happen. Um, at, uh, early on in the Colbert show, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to perform on the Colbert show that was as stand up or whatever. And, um, the guy who was, he had just been promoted to like, I mean, to a position that they didn't even have. Right. 
And he had been a late night staple. I bet you know who he is because he was around all through Letterman. He had gotten the job by appearing on Letterman at one point, right? So he gets his job. I have a meeting with him. I had a book out at the time. So he loves the book. He wants to send it over to the, you know, whatever publisher. The whole thing's going great. Me and my manager in his office loves me. And then, uh, oh, we don't hear, like a month later, we're not hearing anything and I'm not sure what's going on. And the, the woman who books, like, does, like, all the conferences for the, you know, uh, bookings isn't really responding. Something's going on. And then, boom, man, he got fucking slammed with some kind of sexual harassment thing for, like, Colin Colbert gay, like, I, like and like harassing like the interns or some shit or whatever and i was just like i just you have to laugh because i was just like oh okay i'm like so we just am i my am i just done now or yeah and, <laughs> so that, and, you, and you save all that shit for your memoir <laughs> yeah exactly what a great set so what uh, what brought you to write this book man because it is you the the, the week you sent it to me i read it and i loved it i love any kind of any kind of stuff like this is just invaluable for anybody who's even coming up in the business, even for me, who's I've been doing it for a while, but like, it's just, it's chock full of information, great stories, great lessons to learn. You know, everybody, this is the, this is the book. If anybody doesn't have it, you need to get it immediately. Uh, extremely funny, by the way, some of these things aren't, aren't like, uh, this is, this is what I love about you. I don't know you that well, but I loved reading your book because you, you write the way uh, funny people think. Which is, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you read a book and you're like, ah, it's kind of dragging or whatever. I laugh, I re I laughed out loud, dude, at, at the parts of your book because it felt like I was you. So that's like the best part of reading something like this. Right. That was part of the approach was sort of how I approach scripts where I kind of make myself the main character, you know. Mm -hmm. But e each little story and chapter has like a mission statement, like you would in a in a half hour or even a movie. It's like. Me as this young guy, it's like, holy shit, this is the night I audition at the improv. Right. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to get fucked up. And if it doesn't go well, but wait a minute, this guy's doing that. You know, so it's like creating, trying to create, you know, drama to yeah. really move forward. But And that's uh, what it felt like, too. Did you did you plan on, like, I mean, so is this eventually, like, because it, it seemed to me like you were putting images in people's heads, obviously, when you're writing or whatever. But, like. It was so vivid. I was like, "Oh, I could see this as a movie, or I could see this as a like a short series, or, or whatever it was." Because that's I don't know. Did you intend for to write it like that? Because I wanted to watch this too. Like, well, was, no, but it's funny. The pilot I've been rewriting over and over and over is loosely based on this. Where oh, genius! It's a young kid in Hollywood, you know, who came to be a writer and is just dead in the water and nothing's happening. So right. it's a series of events that he finally gets his first job. And it's like, holy fuck, what did I sign on for? What am I doing? Why did I do this? So right. it's like the showrunner is, you know, horrible boss guy, you know, <laughs> some bitter guy that like, is this the way it works? And, you know, uh, so he gets get tangled in this web and indeed it's basically him stopping going, okay, what, what am I doing? Why did I do this? And do I want to continue to do it? And how do I do it? And do I continue with this place with this guy? I'm going to really quit my first big job. And is that yeah. going to fuck me up? Can I stand this guy? Can we come to a truce? And that's kind of where it, it ends, you know, where like he's going to go back, even though this boss is a horrible boss and he's a dick and he's an asshole. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, there's, there's a set of events that happen where they come to a weird truce where basically the young kid calls him on his shit. Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. You know, but that kind of happened to me. Uh, quick story, but uh, mm -hmm. 
like I had this horrible boss on one of these sitcoms a long time ago. And uh, I would come home, we would work and I'd get home, but it's like one in the morning and I'm fucking jazzed up and I gotta, I take my dog for a walk just to loosen up. And I check my email before I go to bed and he's like instant messaging me at like two in the morning. I, I clocked you from three o'clock to 4.15. You only pitched eight jokes, two which weren't even funny. And you know, it's like, like, holy fuck. Right. And so you start to even freeze up. And then so one day he said, he feels, he goes, let's try this. You know, why don't you come in early with the script, spend some time along with it, go through it, really get it, get it down. And that'll help you when you get in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, so I like I get in early like an idiot and I, I start scribbling in jokes. OK, that'd be funny there. Cut here. You know, so then an hour later, the day starts and we're going through the pages. I'm like, wait, I got a joke here. Uh, why doesn't he go to the church? You know, and the room laughs. And they go, oh, OK, joke that in. I go, we can cut page two. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like mm-hmm. and then so he calls me in his office at the end of the day and he's like, and I'm like so uh, what would you think? And I go, that, that, you know, it's getting uh, it helped a lot. He goes. No, he goes, no, 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 you, you can't do that. I go, what are you talking about? Well, you were you were reading from your page. You're reading your jokes. You, you read them down, wrote them down. You're reading. You got to make it up as you go along. I'm wow. Like, that's, you know, that's when the wall yeah. goes yeah. down. And it's like, that, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know. Right. Um, Holy shit, man. But to answer your question again quickly, the part of it was uh, I was burning so many hours, like, fucking around on, on the Internet uh, I was also trapped in a hotel writing. Uh, I was in Nova Scotia working on the Trailer Park Boys. So I had a lot of downtime. And I had kind of had a bunch of these stories in a way already up on Facebook. I was just kind of writing and typing and putting them out there. So I right. used that as a starting point. But it was really about like a book I wish I had when I was 17 to read. Just to kind of, you know, if you're a small town kid and you want to get into show business, you want to get into stand-up, you want to be a writer, it's like a behind the scenes of what you can expect, the kind of things that can happen. I mean, mm. it's my journey, but it's it's a it's kind of a bunch of life's life lessons of like, holy Christ, I didn't get the thing that I really wanted to get, but here's how it turned into this thing. How yeah, to yeah. kind of get back on your feet and you know, uh just kind of showing the value of that. And at the same time, it's like, I've seen some crazy shit and, you know, working in Times Square in the porn district, just moved in from Connecticut and I'm 42nd street in 1980 where it was crack and, and sex houses. And so I had to repair the projection equipment in these porn theaters because I went to a vocational high school Mm -hmm. because I was deemed somehow not college material. So I learned to trade. Wow. My first joke was I learned to trade so my parents would know what kind of business I'm out of. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I just had a lot of crazy experiences. I worked on so many different kinds of shows and worked with so many different celebrities and comic heroes. Yeah, man. I mean, that's the the other thing, too. Uh, Like that your book brought me back to like my high school days of when I was grabbing anything comedy that I could find to cling to, to make me one feel like I was in that world and not one, not so alone to begin with anyway, because you, you know, we're a unique breed to begin with. Nobody thinks the way we do half the time. And you just feel like until you meet somebody else, who's like you, you just nobody else. So that's another thing that, that is, a, that is a great thing about the book is that it just, it's just 
crystallizes that whole process and and time and stuff and uh the amount of people that you work with, i mean did that when you were when you were working with all these the, all these people and going through all these shows were you just kind of bouncing from show to show to show to show and just like writing for people or did it did you ever have that moment where you paused and you were like i can't believe this is fucking happening like is this really happening yeah there was were you a, able to realize it i mean like at some point matt granning and i were just friends hanging out and we're like mm -hmm. the idiots in the back of the writer's room laughing you know like right and like david cohen's yelling at us to like you know, huh, let's focus you know right um uh, uh martin short i mean you know that was great because uh he had a talk show uh, it was a weird thing and it wasn't exactly right for him but I remember that when I was young. I saw some of, I saw him, I saw the one with um, Steve Martin when he was on. Yeah. So that was kind of cool working on that because he'd have lunch with us every day and he would mm -hmm. bring in someone from SCTV to re redo their character. You know, so I'm sitting with Martin Short and then Edith Prickley is there and, and Count wow. Floyd, and, you know. Um, so that was cool. Um, yeah, it's just weird, like, you know, hanging out with Ted Danson, you know, on, uh, on shoot nights, he would, he would, he had like this three room suite as his dressing room and he just gave it over to the writers and actors and it was, you know, pool tables and a bar, and, you know, amazing. Um, and meeting the old time celebrity, you know, old time comics that my dad and I bonded over as, you know, when I was a kid, you know, right. watching them on TV and, um, there's a story in there that, uh, for my dad's 60th birthday and, my dad was living in a small town in Connecticut mm -hmm. and Henny Youngman was his favorite. It was our favorite, you know, and as a surprise, I hired Henny Youngman to show up at his birthday party. Wow. That was crazy. I mean, he had, my dad had like 60, 80 of his best friends and our family. And then Henny Youngman shows up with his loud jacket and the violin <laughs> starts doing one liners. And, you know, for my dad, it would be like if we had, you know, uh, the who show up at our party, you know? Right. Right. So that was great. That must've felt great at that point in your career to be able to do something like that for your dad. Yeah. Yeah. So he talked about that for the rest of his life. In fact, um, when he was in hospice, uh, I had sort of this last night along with him and his, his wife at the time said, you know, can, you know, read the scriptures to him. And he left, and I just popped on Henny Youngman jokes on my phone and just like, you oh know, my, God. my wife said, take me somewhere I've never been before. I said, how about the kitchen? You know, and just for <laughs> 15 minutes, you know, that's incredible. Yeah. That's a great moment, man. Um, I, I don't want to, I got you for an hour and 15. If you want, I can keep, if you got any place to go or if you want to, if you have to go, I understand, but I could ask you more, you know, I could still keep talking to you. I got more questions, but it's up to you. Ask away. Awesome, dude. So what, when was, so when you were working on Futurama, which is one of my favorite shows, um, what, what, like, how did you wind up doing that? Like you were friends with Matt Groening, but then, uh, did that transition into the Futurama thing or, no, or... I, didn't know Matt. I didn't know Matt before that. Oh, you didn't know Matt before Futurama? I, okay. No, no, no. We, we, we sort of bonded over the show. Okay. Um, I was, it's funny. The chain, I guess, was Bob Odenkirk and I wrote a movie. We wrote this thing based on us, which was. Every like every Friday, we would find the craziest 1970s black exploitation movie. Mm -hmm. We loved those movies. We thought they were so cool. 
right. try to find the craziest one. And every Friday we'd have this screening thing. You know, we'd have a couple people, you know, David Cross and whoever, some Mr. Show people, and we watch these movies and laugh our asses mm-hmm. up. So we had this idea for a movie. What, what if these nerds, us, got stuck in a 1970s black exploitation movie? So it's them in downtown Detroit with pimps and hookers and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we ended up actually selling it. Um, but it didn't, of course, it didn't get made. But um, <laughs> so there was the Eddie Murphy show called The PJs. Mm-hmm. It was like a foamation, not quite animation. Yeah. And they were looking for writers, and I used that script as my sample. Nice. <laughs> and that got me the job. And I didn't know that everybody at Futurama were like crazy fans of the PJs. In fact, in some Futurama episodes, there's, you know, PJs, Easter eggs. Yes. There's the Uh, sewer. Yeah. uh, um, Cover. Yeah. Yeah. The manhole cover. Yeah. And, uh, and then there used to be this yearly uh, writer's party, which they should do more of these, but it was uh, a benefit for cancer at a Mm -hmm. bowling alley. And that's where I met David Cohen. And he was excited to hear that I wrote for the PJs and was asking about it and all that stuff. And then, uh, then he contacted me a couple of weeks later and says, we need a writer over here, send a script over. And, and again, that's, you know, for better or worse, that's part of the, what you're saying, you know, you are kind of auditioning, you know, but sometimes the auditions pay off. Yeah. So yeah, then it, he liked my script. I mean, I, I met, I remember, you remember what you sent in, you know what? It might've been a 30 rock or something. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I met with those guys, and Matt was really cool, and David, you know, and he got excited when he heard I had an electronics background from trade mm-hmm. school. And then when I told him I worked for NASA, I worked on the space shuttle, they were like, well, here's your office over here. I mean, that was <laughs> like, you know. Wow. That was the sealer of the deal. Yeah. That show, I, I, Futurama is like, I, I love The Simpsons. I've been a Simpsons fan, you know, for years. And, uh, and then when The Simpsons started to get, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's been on forever. You know what I mean? I think everybody kind of grows out of it. You know, it, I don't even, you know, I know that I know people who love the newer episodes completely, you know, and then, uh, the, and then I love the older ones and stuff. So they're like, they don't, and they don't like the older ones, but, um, but uh, when Futurama came on, it was like a whole like that was a whole other level of just writing and brilliance. And um, did you guys like there? How how did the, how the hell did you guys wind up like branching off? And it was like a whole different set of sense of humor, though, too. You know what I mean? Like it still had the Simpsons element and the zaniness, but like whatever the Simpsons lost, I think Futurama gained, and then like times ten. Well, I mean, all those guys. I mean, if I ever pat myself on the back, it's for that because they're all Harvard, Harvard guys. And I mm-hmm. had two years of high school and two years of shop, you know. Right. Um, so I feel proud of myself for doing that. But uh, they, I know they liked me because uh, I was a joke guy. And they're mm-hmm. kind of Harvard guys who are very kind of structured and focused and mathematical and scientific. And I was a joke guy and I was kind of the uh, emotion guy. You okay. Know, um, example of that, I don't know if you know, there's one called Game of Tones. Yeah. Where Fry is running around in his dream trying to say goodbye to his mom. Yep. Beautiful. Uh, 
And that was based on my mom. When her mom passed away, she kind of got over it when she had a dream of her mom saying goodbye to her. Wow. So I figured, you know, Fry really didn't have that moment with his mom because he was jettisoned into the future, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a beautiful episode. I will never forgive any of you for Jurassic Bark, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's like, I think that's like probably one of the first or few times I like openly wept at a cartoon by the end of it where I was just like, and the, and the one with, um, um, Fry's brother. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember that luck of the luck of the Fryerish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, beautiful episodes. The dog thing and the Seymour, the dog at the end of, uh, Jurassic Park, that ending was kind of a throwaway. It felt like a last minute, unless I'm misremembering, but it was sort of like, Oh yeah, let's have the dog and the thing. Oh yeah, let's put that in. Like it didn't, (laughs) nobody stopped and was like, you know, it just felt we, like well, that's a good way to tag it. Yeah. You know. Wow. Oh my God. Because that ending is like, br- like you just don't, I mean, the, the, the whole episode is touching in and of itself. And also one of the funniest fucking episodes too, because I mean, what I, I used to say this, my friends and I used to quote the line, professor, lava, hot, like over, because <laughs> he's just, uh, you know, drivers, so we quote that over and over again. And, and Bender, of course, throwing the dog in the thing going, now I'm all you got. Like, just uh-huh. hilarious. And then it ends very touchingly. And then the, the credit scene, the dog waiting for him until he dies. It was like, it just yeah. fucked everybody. We were, we were just like, it was, it was crazy. I think all my friends have a bone to pick with you over yeah, there. <laughs> you'll see my uh, black exploitation uh, mark in there where uh, when they find the, uh, when, he, when he finds his dog, when it's uh, turned to stone to. Uh, Dolomite. Dolomite. Yeah. Yeah. I was just gonna ask you, is that was the, was that part of that was that reason why? Because that yeah. again, reading your book and then finding that out, and then all of a sudden I flash back to the Futurama thing. I was like, that's hilarious. If that really how that wound up being in there, that's hilarious. Well, it's funny. About- I'm 70% dolomite, baby. Yeah. <laughs> um oh. Odenkirk did a small part in Eddie Murphy's movie, The Dolomite movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, great movie. That was fantastic. So he called me and said, you got to come down here because if we did our movie, this is what it would be like. You know, everybody. Wow. Samson's. And so, uh, so he had, to, I don't know if you remember, but he had a scene in a boardroom where, where Dolomite and all his sort of past yes. member friends and all his, his posse were there. Mm-hmm. And he, Bob was playing the sleazy guy, the distributor who was going to rip him off basically. And Dolomite didn't know what he was doing. Yep. And, uh, and Eddie's speech to him was like, you white, you know, throwing an N word around and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. We're, we're on that set and uh, waiting for Eddie. And then, you know, everybody's sitting there, the cast and everything. And uh, Bob said, Mike, I want to go over my lines. Can you, can you read, uh, run Eddie's lines for me? Mm. <laughs> so I'm standing there with everybody at the table and I'm like, you know, I'm like Bob Newhart. I'm like, <clears throat> All right, you white, uh, white motherfucker. Uh, and then there was like the N word a few times, and I like, right. I do, and I just, <laughs> just tried to mumble it. <laughs> oh my god, that's great! Uh, so I gotta, I gotta ask you to tell everybody, what did you do for NASA when you worked there? Well, the, if you want to know the truth about it, it yes. was uh, I made transducers. They took fuel and air pressure and converted them into digital readouts. And I had to test them under certain conditions, like 6,000 degrees and 4,000 below zero. And then I would have to record the data 
put it into a computer and it would tell me the correct tolerances uh, to put within the circuit changes. Oh my God. That's fucking nuts. I know. I was, uh, I was in this tiny room with these two Vietnam vets. I was, again, I guess I could pat myself on the back for that because yeah, when I went to the uh, meeting for the job, they gave me a math test. I'm like, what? They gave me a calculator and a math. And I'm like, oh, man. And then I'm waiting for my results. I like, I just wanted to run, you know. Right. And uh, and it was like an airplane parts place. They Mostly airplane parts. And then I noticed a little room in the back. Right. NASA space shuttle. And the guy said, yeah, you work here a couple of years. They'll let you work in the uh, rocket dying division. The guy came out. He goes, we got your test. Now, if you want, we can start in the rocket dying division. I'm not saying I'm a genius at all. Nothing like that. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But all of a sudden I'm like with these guys, you know, it, it's an interesting thing too, though, for people like, again, getting back to like wanting to be in show business and all that sort of thing. It's yeah. that yeah. moment where, you know, I was handed everything uh, that was leading to like the perfect kind of American dream. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I was Potential great job. I still had my high school girlfriend. You know, this this is where I could be for the rest of my life. I'm in my hometown. And I thought, okay, this is now the reality sets in. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be the big celebrity. I'm not going to be a stand-up. Mm-hmm. It's when people get to that point of like, yeah, I'm not going to be in the NBA, right? So let me start my life now. Right. So I, that's where I went. I'm like, okay, this is now where I really put that away and start my life for real. Mm-hmm. And I'm into it. I'm like, and it just kept nagging at me. Like, wow, I can't. I can't. Yeah, you can't ignore that calling. Yeah, that's uh, crazy though, because that's not like. Uh, let's be honest. Most comedians or comedy writers, they're like, yeah, my life could have been, you know, working at the bank inside of a Ralph's. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I had the girl. You worked at fucking NASA. Like, that's I. I mean, I've got. I've only got NASA hats, man. You got like, like it's on you. That's insane. That did you ever see anything crazy while you were there where you're like, what the fuck's in that room? You know what I mean? Like independence day level shit or no, no. Uh, even the computer that we're talking, this is 78 or something. The computer Mm -hmm. looked like an old manual typewriter, you know, I pushed the keys and then this long read on and I would have to interpret what everything was. Um, was it like the one in the Superman show from the black and white days? It was like, you walk to a big room and it ticker tape came out. (laughs) You read it. The two Vietnam vets had no sense of humor. I was trying to like, oh. like they, we had microscopes and I put a little sticker, peep show, 25 cents. Yeah. <laughs> and they looked at me like, like I was Viet Cong, you know. Like. <laughs> See, where's your Rocket Boys movie? You know what I mean? You need it. You need an October sky of how you went. You, oh, that's got to be in. Are you writing that into the series where you that's that's amazing. He starts at NASA and then goes to do com and like, and he's just, uh, the guy's just like doing stuff like that around the office at NASA. No one's getting him. And he's right. (laughs) It's like, we had to make this compound, this Mm -hmm. NASA compound where we had to go in a dust free room and mix these two chemicals. And it's almost only good for, for 15 minutes, you know, was to keep glue the circuitry onto the, and then I would bring it into the room and then I would take Q-tips and dip it in a thing and throw them into the ceiling and try to get, <laughs> you know, and they're looking at me like, what the fuck? But it, it kind of made me realize I was like sabotaging myself. Yeah. 
So then I would put myself in a position where like I got fired so I can now do what I want to do. Yep. But I didn't get fired, but I, the, 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 the thing that happened then, and sometimes it's kismet, you know, mm-hmm. there was, and, and I, you know, I knew about the improv and started to see these young comics on TV that went there and stuff like that. And then in the local paper, there was a stand-up comics competition in Hartford, Connecticut. And wow. first prize was you got to audition at the improv. Holy shit. And I'm like, all right, it must be a message, you know. Yeah. And I won the contest and auditioned at the improv and passed auditions. Holy shit. So I'm like, I guess what what do I need to have happen to yeah. do this? You know? Yeah, you can't ignore that shit, man. I mean, you were working for a place that saw the stars and then you saw your own and you know, that's incredible. That's just that's just fucking wild. I can't. I'm ne- I don't know anybody that works at NASA. So I, or worked at NASA. So and then when it, not only do I not know anybody who worked at NASA and then went into comedy, I just don't know anybody who worked at NASA. So this is fucking. Uh, this is just amazing. You got you. Got, I love space stuff. I, I'm one of those people who just. Re- I don't know anything. I can't do anything that you just said when you said you built into. I don't even know what the fuck that is, and like I'm horrible at math. Everything else is great. Math cannot do it. I don't know why I'm just dumb. I mean, not like basic math. I mean, like X for whatever. You know what I mean? Any of that shit. I'm an idiot. I mean, I believe me. I, I could not even. I can't remember one tiny thing of math or any of that. I could not. Right. It takes me eight minutes to figure out how to put the tip on the check. You know, like. Uh, <laughs> I carry the one? Get my right. wife to help me. Can you? I can't. Right. Carry the one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Especially with like phones and shit not doing for you now. I mean, like no one's remembering any of that crap anymore. Yeah. Uh, that's just amazing, dude. I gotta I won't I won't keep you too much longer. I'm gonna ask you one more uh question. Ask everybody if you if you had one piece of advice that you I know you've given out a little nuggets here and there, but one piece of advice, uh comedy in life for a young comic coming up today, what would you give him? Uh keep following your voice. Keep looking for what makes you different and special from everyone else. Know that you'll probably get your ass kicked more for trying to take that route, but it will leave you in a place where you'll likely have not only more success, but probably more satisfying success. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's hard, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's worth it. You, you gave, I mean, again, you gave up now. Na- that's just fucking awesome, dude. I, I, I'm so glad we got to talk to you. I got to talk to you, meet you, and hope to meet you in person one day when this is safe to meet people in person again, whenever the hell that'll be. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah man. And do you, is there anything else you want to plug before you go besides your book or anything else you got going uh, on? That's it. Um, that's it. Awesome, dude. Thank you so, so fucking much for coming on, man. It's been a thrill. All right, cool. Nice to meet you. Pleasure. Nice to meet you too, dude. Guys, all right, man. Dystopia tonight.